I listened to that episode of Planet Money, the Halloween episode. Very haunted. It was very haunted. I didn't expect a 2008 financial crisis episode to be <laughs> a haunting episode. It's cursed. Although when they um, decided to split up, I wanted to start singing Don't Split the Party. Never split the party. Never split the party. I Come on, guys, you need to know better than this. I always try to when we play D&D. Just to create mayhem and... Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Manga in Your Ears. The music you just heard is from the anime version of Tokyo ESP. Uh, as of this recording, we're not sure what music Corey's putting in there, so I can't tell you if it's the opening or the ending. <laughs> I'm never sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always a subject of debate before the podcast to figure out what music we're going to use. And by debate, I mean all of us racking our brains for something relevant. <laughs> but as you've probably gathered from that, one of the manga we'll be talking about this week is Tokyo ESP. Uh, which has been published in full by Vertical. And the other title we are going to be talking about is My Brother's Husband, which is published by... It's just massive, right? The company they basically created to publish his works, uh, It says Pantheon on the side. I don't know if that's a company. I didn't actually look it up. Yeah, it says Pantheon Books, so... Well, as you guys can probably surmise, it's not one of the usual suspects on this podcast. And I will be talking about Tokyo ESP. As always, I'm Helen. And our, my co-hosts are... Oh, yeah. I'm Corey. Hello. <laughs> Do we know our names? Um, nope. And I'm April. <laughs> I say my co-host, but honestly, we're all each other's co-hosts. There's no seniority here. Anyway, so Tokyo ESP, like I said, it's a manga that's published by Vertical. Vertical opted to publish each volume as an omnibus of two volumes. So when we're talking about volume numbers, we're going to be talking about the Vertical releases, not the original Japanese release numbers. So here in the U.S., it's complete in eight volumes, and it was adapted partially into an anime a couple of years ago, but as I understand it, not the full anime, um, not the full manga was adapted into the anime. Uh, the plot of Tokyo ESP is uh, probably what you were starting to suspect from a title. Uh, we have characters, and they live in Tokyo, and they gain ESP. The story, for the first part at least, follows primarily uh, Rinko Urashiba and when she gains ESP, she gains the power to phase through non-inanimate um, inanimate objects. So, like, metal, plastics, but not anything that was ever organic, like wood or cotton clothing. And she is utterly baffled why she suddenly has this power, why she's waking up in the downstairs apartment neighbor's room that she has just phased through the floor while sleeping. She is very confused about all this. And she is soon approached by a classmate named Kyotaro, who, um, he remembers her. Like, she saved his butt once in a fight, but she doesn't remember it. She, she just gets into a lot of fights. And he's developed the power of teleporting. And he's like, yeah, we're chosen to be these new heroes of justice. And they get tangled up in this odd set of conspiracies, since they're not the only folks out there with ESP. There's a whole bunch of other people. There's a penguin with ESP, which is pretty great, honestly. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, where do the, these new ESP powers come from? Who's behind the scenes manipulating everything, you know? And 
how many large buildings can the manga draw and fit into a single page? The number is a lot. He, he enjoys having like giant buildings thrown around in some of the more climactic fights. Oh, but I thought was sort of amusing when I started reading this comic is that I can look at this comic and I could go, okay, the mangaka definitely liked American blockbuster movies and American superhero comics. Since I know a lot of people say that about like My Hero Academia, but I felt like it was even more true here in Tokyo ESP. Like it definitely felt like this guy liked American superheroes. Did you guys also think that? Yeah, that's definitely the vibe uh, that I got. From this initial vibe, so I've only read the first Omnibus, and even that's been a while ago. But yeah, that's definitely the the vibe that I got. That it was very, that uh, the author had an affinity for that stuff. It's it it was obvious in this first one, anyway. Oh, and I forgot the one of the characters is literally Yoda, but you don't notice it because he's usually dressed up in a panda suit, and just that is just one of the few weird things you have to roll with with this series. There's never <laughs> a really good explanation given for it. Let's see, Corey and I have read the entire series, so we're probably going to do an after-the-credits spoiler cast um, talk about this series. But just going um, off of, like, the first few volumes, I think part of the reason I thought this feels a lot like an American comic is because when you look at a lot of weekly Shonen Jump titles or similar, like My Hero Academia, like Naruto and like Bleach, you have characters who have some superpowers, but they're coming into a society that already has these powers. There's already, you know, the Soul Reaper Society. There's already all the ninja exams. There's already schools and licenses for superheroes. And even just beyond, like, those big three titles, like, you can make an argument then, like, Demon Slayer, um, Kaimitsu no Yaiba, there's already, like, the Demon Slayer Corps, which are handling requests, and the Promised Neverland, the kids are on a series of farms that have already been well-established. I feel like in a lot of uh, Japanese shonen manga, you'll find characters who are already coming into a society and are in some ways pushing against society, in some ways trying to find their place, but it's not a big concern. But in Tokyo ESP, like, the society is being created as characters are there. ESP users are basically completely new to this world. You find out more later on that some characters have had them for a while, and I don't think it's ever quite explained how some of these characters have had powers for a while. Like, that I thought was a definite plot hole. But by and large, you see Tokyo just sort of struggling with all of these new super-powered people running around, causing crimes, trying to solve crimes, getting in everyone's way. And they're trying really hard to deal with it, and uh, doesn't usually turn out so well. <laughs> but yeah, and that sort of reminded me of American comics a bit more, where you'll have, like, superheroes, but, like, in Miss um, Marvel, you see her... Um, you see that she knows about other superheroes, but she's still got to find her own place. There's no predetermined place in the system for her to fit in. Yeah, I think you're right with the uh, the American comics comparison. I think a lot of uh, I don't know if there was a lot of people. Anecdotally, a lot of people uh, compared Kogyo's ESP to X Men when it first came out because there's a lot of similarities there. Like people are getting these powers. Uh, seemingly out of nowhere in X-Men it's because they've hit pure piggy for some reason and in Tokyo SP it's because these ring and fish are entering their bodies and giving them powers and, <laughs> that uh, come from no you don't understand they come from the Ark the Ark yeah. of the Covenant yeah. okay I hadn't made it that far that's into it I guess <laughs> yeah that's another thing um, but then there's also the, an aspect of them being uh them being othered for having these powers, them being feared for having these powers, 
uh, it harkens back to, like, I forget which X-Men movie that was, but whichever one, when they were talking about Shadow Cat, and they're like, well, what stops her from walking through the walls of a bank and just stealing a bunch of money? And, like, the the same kind of fears exist with these powers as they do in X-Men. Uh, but I don't know if it's, like, a, a one-to-one comparison, of course, uh, because I think Tokyo ESP does some, like, more interesting things that you'd only see in manga, like what, what Helen was saying about fighting with giant buildings in the background. Uh, not that, like... I don't know, have you seen Marvel movies recently? <laughs> right, not that, like, X-Men ever goes to... never goes to New York or whatever, but... It's not, it's not the immediate thing I think of when I'm thinking of uh, superhero comics. Yeah, X-Men was definitely a comparison I thought of, but my only brush with X-Men has been, like, I think the movie First Class, when it came out in, like, 2011 or so? So I didn't want to be making that comparison and just saying, like, I think this is, like, the concept of X-Men that I've never read. But yeah, I think um, I think Corey and I will probably have more to say about this in the spoiler cast section, since this is 16 volumes of Japan and goes on for a while. <laughs> so I think, like, the only other unspoilery thought I have to say is, my God, some of these fight scenes go on forever. I really wish his editor had been like, look, the fight needs to end at some point. You need to just stop especially for some of the more climatic battles at the end of the first part and at the end of the second part. They just keep going on and on, and you're like, come on, by now, like, why have you not stopped by now? Like, this is not helping. <laughs> I, I can't suspend my belief that the person can keep getting this much more powerful, and then you can stop them. Yeah, they always seem to, like, pull out something new. Um, but not, not spoilery. Like, what what initially drew me to Tokyo SP is that it seems to be... Uh, about a lot of people that just are kind of displaced in life. They don't really have, uh, or they don't really feel they have a family or family figures to go to. Uh, but Rinka and her dad are just kind of like these homely figures for all of them, and they just accept them into this giant friend group that uh, includes eventually enemies and uh, Zuko-like characters, the anti-heroes. <laughs> That that was that was something that's that seemed cool to to see in a to see in a manga because usually it's just like a, uh, everyone's already together and stuff. Yeah, it definitely has a lot of themes of found family, since a number of the characters do still have family members alive, but a lot of them are just sort of problematic. Like there's um, one girl who's from a family of like renowned thieves, and we eventually meet some other people in her family. And she's got an okay relationship with some of them, and a bad relationship with some others. Yeah, or the, there's the a, invisible a, girl has her sister that is like literally her rival throughout the entire manga. Yeah, and then her characterization kind of changes by the end, which yeah. was something I didn't like as much. Or we have another girl, and it's not that she dislikes her dad, but her dad is like a major boss of a major yakuza syndicate, so <laughs> she definitely feels like she can't really make friends with anybody. Everyone's intimidated by her. We've got a boy whose mother's a politician and doesn't seem like there's any other one, anyone else in his life. And then for Kyotaro, like, his parents are dead from a civil war. He gets picked up by their old friend and his daughter. They vanish on him two years before the story starts. And then we find out they are some of the main villains behind everyone gaining ESP in Tokyo. <laughs> so there's some issues going on here. Yeah. Kyotaro is feeling very conflicted. It sounds like there's a lot in this one that I hadn't gotten to i just got through that first volume and like i said it's been a while and yeah i really was stuck on the fish I'm like where did the fish come from so uh, i know they come from the ten commandments <laughs> sort of <laughs> would have guessed um but yeah it seems like there is a is a bunch 
here to still get to. I think one of the things I would be interested in is actually checking out the anime over the manga. It just seems like, at least in that first omnibus, that there's like a lot going on. And as I was reading, I'm kind of like, man, I would actually think that I would prefer to see this animated or live action or whatever, just because there was so much. She she sort of gets the powers, and then people are fighting, and then there's the fish, and then there's her dad, and I'm like, maybe this would be better for me animated. So, see, like, I initially thought that as well, but Corey has seen the anime, and Corey tells me it's actually even slower paced than the manga. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm guessing that the anime probably goes through about the first three volumes or so, since there's sort of a natural breaking point there. Yeah, I didn't remember exactly, but it was like three or four volumes that I got to. Yeah, what probably. It four probably four ends with like the first time they drop a giant ship on Tokyo, yeah. right? <laughs> Do you mean like the oh, yeah, yeah. so the actual omnibus? Or? Uh, three or four at the omnibus. Uh, yeah. I think probably the end of three, since oh, that's no, no, when three or four total, like two omnibuses. Oh, okay. oh, not even that far. Uh-huh. I don't know where that uh, giant droppy thingy happened, but that is where the enemy ending. Yeah, that that's in volume three, I think, okay. or at least they resolved the giant dropped boat in three. And man, did they ever explain how they got rid of that boat? I don't think uh, they did. No, they time skip a lot, so I think it's just yeah. it, it happened eventually. Yeah, there's like a three-year time skip right after that, so I guess we're supposed to be thinking, oh, they got rid of it in those three years somehow. But yeah, that was my thought as well, since, like I said, a lot of the fight scenes go on for a while, and sometimes you can use an anime to edit. Like um, Justin was telling me on the OASG podcast that the anime for Radiant actually sort of edits the manga story. It's not quite as insufferable as the first volume of the manga was like we talked about last time and some of these fights definitely would probably look better animated where you would just have a better sense of the motion and the pacing but it sounds like that's sadly not the case so yeah there and is was that a manga globe title or nope that was epic never mind okay. yeah there were there was some uh, motion issues in the manga where like there's just too many moving parts or they're not uh, drawn well enough to be able to tell what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's really uneven. And I even found the overall pacing of the story a bit uneven. There would be parts where I'd be really getting into the story, and then there would be parts where it's sort of not making much motion, it's sort of dragging, usually during those long fight scenes, where I just get really tired, and I'm like, okay, come on, okay, we've dealt with the terrorists like five times already, can we please move on to the next part? I thought we had like dealt them once and for all two times ago. What is going on? It's not that the series feels ill-planned out it just feels like it really needed another set of eyes saying this part doesn't flow so well this part doesn't make so much sense yeah an editor (laughs) editors are great y'all they're really great but yeah with that i think that's um well you guys will have to like i said you guys will tune until the end of the podcast till we really blow april's mind on the rest of the series (laughs) so let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with the of our chat about my brother's husband We are back, and we're going to talk about My Brother's Husband now, uh, the manga by Gengoro Tagame, uh, published by Pantheon, we guess, and is uh, just about this uh, this guy and his daughter, 
that live in Japan. They li- they live in Tokyo. I think so. all manga takes place in Tokyo, basically. Yeah. So <laughs> just like all American TV shows take place in New York or LA. Yeah. Um, and as the title suggests, his brother Tuzman comes to visit them. Uh, and he's just kind of thrown off by this. Uh, the societal expectations in Japan are just kind of homophobic in general, so he just kind of follows along with that. And he's been kind of estranged from, from his brother for like t- 10 years or longer, basically since uh, his brother came out to him. Uh, this is getting confusing with all the he's and him's. Uh, the living guy is named Yaiji, Yaichi. Uh, and then his brother's name was uh, Ryoji, and Yaichi is has these kind of in- homophobic ingrained things about him. Uh, but as he generally grows up and uh, gets to know his brother's husband Mike, he learns that like these things are just kind of not right to think because his daughter is like, well, why, why do you think like this? Like, why are you? not letting Mike stay at the house, even though you make a fig about the cousin staying at the house, why you uh, think that a man and a man can get, cannot get married when they love each other, because, like, a man and a woman love each other, so a man and a man love each other can also get married. Like, there are these little things that happen throughout the manga that are just, like, very cute and accepting of the girl and the, uh, the father, Yaichi, is just kind of learning throughout the girl's experience that, uh, he should stop thinking the way he thinks. Uh, he should stop being think. a dick. Yeah, yeah. He should definitely do that. <laughs> yeah, so when I read this series, I was a little taken aback at how simple it is, since I'd heard so much praise for the series, and I was like, this is a bit underwhelming, honestly. Which I suppose is more the fault of the hype than the actual series. But yeah, um, the... Shoot, what is what is the living brother's name? Ichiro? Yaichi. Yeah, okay, there we go. Yeah, um. Yaichi is just sort of bland. Like, his daughter definitely steals the show in almost every scene. And Mike's pretty nice as well, but I wasn't expecting him to be sort of the affable, laughable gaijin otaku at first. And actually to the point where I was at a book talk for this book recently, and I asked the mangaka, why did you make him Canadian? Did you want their marriage to be legal? Or did you think by making him sort of a funny foreigner it would possibly deflect any homophobic thoughts on the part of potential readers in Japan. And the answer was he did want um, uh, Ryuji and Mike to be legally married, and since he speaks English and he has friends in Canada, he could check in with making him command. Canadian was the best thing. They wouldn't be able to be legally married if they were both Japanese. But it stuck out to me enough that I felt like he was trying to make Mike less threatening in some ways, that I had to ask about it. Which is kind of funny since he draws all the guys very far, very much like bears. Like friendly bears, but you know, usually the idea of like a big burly guy is not friendly as much. You guys get what I'm saying? I'm not saying yeah. it very well. Yeah, Mike Mike seems very panga like in his uh, demeanor. He just kind of exudes this uh, joyous, uh, jovial kind of person that is just uh, magnetic in his personality. So the series actually looks like it's only two omnibuses, and it looks like the second one yep. just came out, or I, yep. I just picked it up. Um, and it seems like it's, and I'm, I imagine I guess it was intended this way, but it seems like it's mostly like Yaichi's story more than anything else, and him coming to terms with um, the relationship that he had with his brother, um, and his brother being 
gay and all that. So I, I think this is his story more than it is Mike's or even really his daughter's. Um, his his daughter, I think, is sometimes sort of the audience stand in or, or at least his daughter is the one that's that the kind of uh, is sort of the opposite of what her father thinks or kind of helps her father's thought process. Um, I thought it was an interesting series. I didn't really know what to expect. I've had the first volume for a while. I think I bought it randomly and just hadn't picked it up yet and then picked it up for the podcast. Um, so I wasn't really sure what to expect. And I didn't realize that his daughter was going to play uh, such a large role. The back of at least the first volume says something to the effect of um, it being an eye-opening story about children and parents and how they affect each other. And I really think that's actually the bulk of the story instead of it necessarily being like a LGBT or gay story. It is, but I really think it's more about um, the father as the main character. Yeah, definitely. Because Mike, Mike and uh, crap, I forget the daughter's name, Kana, they don't really Kana, uh-huh. yeah, they don't really change much throughout the series. Mm. Uh, but Yaichi is doing all of the changing just because Kana doesn't. She's 11 years old. She doesn't quite have a uh, filter where she shouldn't, or where she feels she shouldn't ask certain questions that is that her that her father is definitely embarrassed about. But by by asking these questions, she she and her father are able to learn like so much about gay culture, about uh, LGBT culture that they just don't know, uh, having lived in Japan. So it's a good uh, it's a good vehicle for uh, his father learning all these things without having to have like kind of rote discussions with Mike about them. Yeah, I think. Although I think he does have some discussions. Doesn't he straight up ask him at one point, like? Who's the man and who's the woman? Uh, or, or does he only imagine doing that? The daughter does that, and oh, he's okay. embarrassed by the fact that she did that. But then he's like, I, it, like he's in bed one night thinking about it, and he's like, but it's, I'm ashamed because I was th- I wanted to ask the exact same question. I think maybe he scolded her for it, but she's the one that actually did it. And then he realized that he was thinking the same thing. I, I think that's the way that happened, yeah. if I remember it correctly. Because he does have a couple inner monologues that's just like. Mm. He definitely wants to say these things, but he's just thinking these things because he's uh, embarrassed and outraged at these random questions that his daughter is asking. Even though he has the same questions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it does save Mike from having to field some of those questions, especially because uh, Mike is in Japan for a couple of different reasons, and I'm sure he doesn't really feel like uh, fielding Yaichi's questions, although he seems open to it. I guess that's the thing about Mike that I was a little disappointed about is that he, like like the, like everyone else has said, he doesn't really change. That's why I said it's mainly um, a story about the father. Not that that makes it a bad story, but it, the, the central focus isn't really uh, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, since Khan is at the one asking the questions, but we see Yaichi reacting to them most, I really do wonder which one of them is supposed to be more of the audience insert. I honestly think it is supposed to be more of Yaichi, mm. where, you know, outwardly you're scolding someone for asking a kind of intrusive question but in the inside you're thinking oh but i actually want to know mm-hmm. yeah i think one of the best ways to sum this up is as a queer person myself i did not really get much out of the story i did not get really much out of explaining to the straight how gayness works <laughs> <laughs> i think the one there was one particular a chapter that I appreciated where, although it just kind of came out of nowhere, there's like a, a kid mm-hmm. um, hanging around outside the house, like he's just mm-hmm. kind of hanging around there. And it it turns out that he's heard about Mike or seen Mike. And eventually um, 
Yeah, he's he, a sibling of one of Kana's friends. The, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he's a, he's the older sibling, I think, maybe of one of Kana's classmates or something or other. Mm-hmm. But he eventually says, you know, he wants to talk to Mike, and it's obviously it's obvious what it's about. And you know, he comes up to Mike, and they kind of have that connection. And I thought that that was I thought that that was nice, um, and something that does um happen in real life when you meet other people that you feel are similar to you. So there were like small stories that weren't uh focused on the father i guess but i guess i can see sort of where helen is coming from where it still feels like it's for an audience that maybe isn't in the community because it's sort of like well yeah you know kids get kicked out of their homes etc etc and it did feel like the story was kind of introducing concepts to people outside of the community like i said doesn't make it a bad story um but i i don't think i don't again i think it's more uh, a story about the the father and even his relationship with his daughter and even his just family relationships in general, the relationship with his brother and um, his ex-wife comes up as well. Yeah. yeah. The creator said that when he was initially telling the story, he wasn't sure actually if he was going to make her alive or dead at first, but he eventually decided <laughs> to have her alive, but divorced. Did he decide in the middle? Cause I thought she was like dead. And then they're like, no, she's not dead. Like her picture's just here because we're divorced. No. And everybody's like, Oh, I thought she was dead. I'm like, yeah, so did I as a reader. So I wonder if maybe, yeah, I don't know. Cause he just made her. a comment. Like maybe I should have made her a zombie. That was the second um, zombie joke he made at the night. So I really wasn't sure how to take that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what really draws me to, to the manga is not the potential of zombies, but it's, uh, <laughs> that Yaiki is just kind of realizing that as he learns more about gay culture that he has sacrificed a potential relationship with his brother because he was so close when they were younger Um, but once he came out he just kind of unconsciously distanced himself uh, from Yoji uh, just because of the gayness, I don't know Um, so like him, him realizing these things, him kind of finally feeling emotions for both his parents' death and Ryoshi's death is uh, just kind of a journey that I would like to be along for. Um, but it's not like necessarily about learning uh, about all this gay culture stuff, um, which is perhaps not the best way to put it me, but uh, since we, we are more entrenched into, into that kind of culture, than Japan is. Uh, that's not the main appeal. It's just about this this guy that's learning and this dude that's from Canada and very cuddly. <laughs> yeah, I I did appreciate the thing. He, so Yaichi felt like he accepted his brother. Like he sort of acceptance in the sense of like, okay, it's cool, but let's not talk about it because that's also difficult to navigate on either side of it. So I appreciate that he had to come to that realization that just because like I said, I'm okay with it. If, if I sort of turn away from, even if it's subconscious, it still, it still hurts our relationship. And it's kind of a shame that he figured that out as late as he did. Um, But I also feel like that can be true to life where "Ah, it's cool, but it's like, but if you talk about it, it's weird. Can you not do that? And, and people can sense that. So um, I thought that that was a nice addition, at least. Yeah. Yeah, especially since there's a point where um, Yaichi is talking about the kid who's come out and who's been asking Mike for advice, and he's talking about like the secret. And um, Mike says, you know, it's not a secret that I'm gay. You know, maybe a secret for this kid at this point. But I don't feel like this ever needs to, you know, has to be a secret. 
And that concept has clearly not really ever occurred to Daichi. He's always thought of gayness as being something you'd have to keep secret that you wouldn't talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were there are even like those those smaller what is was it a classmate of uh, his brothers maybe was it maybe it was like an an older uh, man that Mike meets up with and he's gay but he's not out. And there's a particular scene uh, once they sort of go to split up and go their separate ways. And Mike says something to the effect of like, well, if I see you in the street or whatever, can I wave hello or tell you hi? And the guy was like, and it looks like the guy first wants to say, yeah, but then he goes, oh, I guess not. And it just, I don't know. It really kind of showed the difference between how Mike is able to live versus how uh, the other classmate uh, was able to live. I mean, I, I feel like there are gray areas in between them. Obviously the story didn't get into, but I did, that was just an interesting point in the story that stood out to me. Um, and it's the same for the younger kid that, that came out. I think Mike may have asked him the same thing. And the kid's like, Oh yeah, you know, make sure you say hi to me or whatever. And it was a totally different experience um, with the classmate that was older and et cetera, and was Japanese. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this uh, hiding hiding of gayness or, like, accepting but not really bringing up just feels very much to me, like, interacting or sometimes interacting with my family because, like, they don't really bring up that I am Asian, like, a lot or ever, but uh, we have to know that we never have the same experience walking around the same places just because I'm Asian and they're whites. That's the same kind of thing here. Ryoji is so aware of being gay in Canada, or in Japan and in Canada, that like even when it's accepted in Canada, he just, he still doesn't want to hold hands with Mike in public just because of the perception that it used to cause him. Yeah, I think I totally, I totally missed that part. Was there like a, a flashback scene of of them in Canada where that came up, or no, no, it's just uh, a part where Mike says says uh, that Ryoji was always not wanting to show affection. I believe it was near oh, 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 oh. when Yaichi mm. was uncomfortable, clearly uncomfortable with uh, Mike just coming out and hugging him. Um, it just Oh yeah, because Kana even asked that. him, hey dad, why don't you ever hug me? And he's yeah. just sort of like, uh, uh. <laughs> that sounded really sad. I was like, I can't imagine a family that doesn't hug you a lot. Yeah, yeah well. <laughs> That's since I've grown up in like big families, big friendly families. Yeah, I think beyond his relationship with his brother, the story also does a good job of, not that I'm a parent, so I guess I can't say totally whether or not it does a good job, but the, it captures a lot of uh, uh, Yachi's anxieties as a father, so he sort of wants to do what's best for Kana and teach her what's best, or he says something like, I want to raise her to not cause any harm, but it at the same time, it, he has to reflect on himself as well. And there's like a lot of anxiety there. Like, how will the other kids treat her? What will the other kids think of Mike? Because she loves Mike. She doesn't know. She thinks it's cool. Like, I've got this big Canadian uncle. Like, she doesn't see anything wrong with it. And so he has a lot of like anxieties about raising her and her being happy and how she feels with her mother not being there all the time. And he spends a lot of like uh, nights awake thinking about her and thinking about Mike. And I thought it captured that anxiety uh, well. It wasn't something that I really expected. Oh, right, I'm doing the thing. Uh, does, <laughs> does anyone have any closing thoughts on My Brother's Husband? Uh, it seems we liked it across the board. I don't know, Not Alan, really. did you? <laughs> I was 
gonna say. <laughs> uh, oh, oh no, no, no! I'm, I don't, I don't think I have any closing thoughts. Um, I was oh, more oh, lukewarm oh. on the series than anything than anyone else. I think. Well, I mean, we it wasn't get... bad. It was just, I don't quite understand why the gay community went gaga over something that's pretty darn straight. <laughs> that's I'm like a, a back cover, a back cover thing. That whole quote. Um. Check on the Helen hot take for the episode. <laughs> Um, I I enjoyed it. I definitely I definitely see Helen's point of view that it wasn't necessarily for somebody. Um, it wasn't necessarily for somebody within the community, but I still I I really enjoyed it. I guess because like m- most of the time with most of the things we read for the podcast, I go into it having no idea what's going on. Half the time I don't even read the backs of things. I'm like, oh, I just have to read this. Uh, so. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by the majority of it, but I can definitely see uh, your point of view, Alan. Yeah. Uh, and with that, let's close out this episode. After our credits, we will have our special Tokyo ESP spoiler cast. But until then, where can we find everybody on the internet? Uh, well, um, when I'm procrastinating on my homework, you can find me on Twitter, at Wandering Dreamer, <laughs> and you can also find me on the OASG podcast, and every now and then, I've got a new review up on the site, but that's really taken a back burner this semester. Just yeah, th- those will come back probably around Christmas on a regular basis. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Mangiaren, and you can find me on Twitter at Impassionate K, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Manga in Your Ears, and you can find all of our episodes at Taiku Podcast. That is T A I I K U. It is also where I do my sports anime podcast. Uh. What was the other thing? Vote November 6th. Yeah, do it, guys. Do it. Yeah, that is that is important. <laughs> All right, with that, we'll take another break, and after that, we will talk about Tokyo ESP. Once again, welcome back, everyone. So now we're going to be talking about the entirety of the Tokyo ESP manga. No holds barred spoilers. So, uh, Corey, <laughs> do you think that we really needed the entire second part of the manga? I was in two, feel- two thoughts of it. Like, on the one hand, I kind of see how the story at the end of the first part with the professor seemingly dead and mm-hmm. we've got, like, other supernatural people running around. I could see how we needed a wrap up. But then we switch, and I'm like, "This isn't Rinko. Why is why do we why are we following this new person? Where is Rinko? Why is she in Fight Club underground? Like, what's going on?" <laughs> uh, yeah, I was also very puzzled by that. I'm not really sure where they're going. It felt uh, this is my only parallel for things that just keep adding things. But it felt like Bleach, and I just wanted to <laughs> it, it had to keep going or wanted to keep going, so it just kept adding things that may or may not have made sense. Yeah, like. It also just seemed like it got darker in the second part, like both on purpose and also like I felt like there was more violence, a bit more gore and a bit more like compromising stuff. Like by the end of the series, it's really great that like a lot of the cast are female characters and they all kick ass and everything. But then you see like these special fighting outfits prepared for them by like basically the CIA 
you know, just in case yeah. worst case scenario. And they're all very stripperific, to use like TV tropes term. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it was... like like we developed this body armor for you. Yeah, why is this body armor completely open down the middle? Like yeah. how... it, it was already like <laughs> kind of a horny manga. Like as you said in the first part, it just starts with Rinka falling through the falling through the floor and we don't mention that she just falls through the floor without her clothes. I think she keeps I her thought bra she had some of her clothes still on. I thought I thought like her underwear was caught or something yeah. so she couldn't face through that. Yeah, I think she keeps her undergarments. Maybe that was like subconscious. She doesn't want to face through those, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it is uh, kind of a, a horny manga to begin with, so it just like changes the way it horns. Overt- well I was gonna say it's not overtly horny, but then there's like some of the ultimate villains and like the very last bit, like there's the one that's just wrapped up in bandages and wow, that there was like some, yeah. there are some camel toe shots there. Yeah. Like, like, like the fifth element person. <laughs> and I'm like, these characters are underage. Please. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so April, here's what happens with the Ark of the Covenant. So it turns out that the Ark of okay. the Covenant is like this old, possibly alien, like device that contains powers. And what it contains is like this, ultimate consciousness called the Messiah, who then grants even greater ESP <laughs> powers to the apostles through a process called benediction. Uh-huh. I gotta say, I don't know if that was the original <laughs> Japanese term or not, but kudos to the translator if it wasn't for giving such a good term in English. Wow. Yes. I can't say I expected any of that, so... No, none of us did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a wild manga. Uh, I didn't expect it to go off in, like, these really random and ramping up directions. Uh, my my opinion of it overall, like, declined as it, as it kept going. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I said, my, thought, my, my, my feelings on it were very mixed. Like, some parts, like, the more low-key parts were good, and then some of the fights were good. But then it's like, okay, we're gonna have Rinka go through, like, six months of, like, underground Hong Kong fight club, and it's yeah. just like, what is going on here? Isn't she, like, in some uh, some sort of trance-like state or something when she's... Yeah, so they all sort of like, okay, we have created, like, an alternate persona inside of you so you can lie more effectively, and it's like, okay, I've seen this in other fancy yeah. stories, whatever. But then it's like, but then maybe <laughs> she can't get out of it, maybe it just keeps coming to the surface, it's like, oh, come on, guys. And they drop it once it stops being effective to the story. Or even, like... I don't know, there's the bit at the very end where they're talking about how, oh, the glowing fish may have activated people's ESP powers, but they weren't the source of the powers. Right. Like, it was stuff that was sort of an inborn ability. But and that, that just left weird. me wondering, because, like, how did the penguin have powers? Because the penguin has, like, very specific powers <laughs> triggered by, um, like, as a glowing fish, there's, like, two special fish, and the penguin's got one special fish. I thought and the penguin the, was, like, a specifically special thing. Like, it was destined to be this penguin to be a special thing? I don't the know. The specialist penguin. <laughs> <laughs> I did like Peggy. I did, I did like Peggy. Although I don't ever remember if, like, their, the power from their ESP both let them eat other people's ESP and fly. I do not remember if they ever explained why the penguin's <laughs> flying. You all have no idea how this sounds to somebody that has not read this. <laughs> it's, like, incredible. <laughs> be aimed please but then like also Ren has like the other special fish and I'm like okay so she's got like this ice freezing powers and so the fish you know but she's also got these powers to sort of like freeze time like this lock space and I'm like am I supposed to take that she had those that like she already had the ice powers and the fish gave her this lock space powers and they're just like a perfect metaphor for each other or she already had these it's like you did not properly explain some parts of this (laughs) And it just left me very frustrated by the end. Uh, yep. 
Yep. And also, okay, so there's the evil organization Ares, which has been, like, stirring up civil wars, you know, it killed Kyotaro's parents and everything, and they know about the Ark, and they've had powers before everyone else got the Ark. Did they ever explain how that worked? Uh, no? I don't think so, because I'm like, okay, some of these characters have definitely had powers for, like, the longer than, like, uh, six or nine years that the story covers by the very end of it. Like, there's one character in there who's like, I'm 120. No thanks to my powers. <laughs> and it's like, how did this happen? Like, I'm genuinely wondering, did I miss something? Since I read volumes one and two a little while back, and then I binged through three through eight in the past two weeks. So I, I feel like I probably should come across that explanation if it was in there, since I read the majority of the series. But I really can't remember, and I'm like, why? Like, we have evil, but how are they? Magical evil? Like... Yeah, there's magically evil, Helen. Magically evil? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, and some of the characterizations powers. sort of started shifting by the end. Like, I definitely felt like um, he was making, like, um, the two thief sisters um, more sympathetic by the end. I think they must have grown on him. Yeah, definitely. Because, like, th- there's um, Blackfist, the one who can go invisible, and she was already starting to become more and more sympathetic, you know, in early parts. But then her sister seems like a total nutso when she first appears. But by the end of the series, she's, like, much less of a nutso. I have questions. There's no answers. <laughs> There's no answers. No. Unless we can get this guy to come to an American convention, and I can corner him with a press badge and be like, all right, dude, this is the interview. Why? <laughs> yeah, nope. It is, uh... Tokyo ESP at the at the end just seems like a sequence of things that were happening, and I was just kind of along for the ride, and like it's drawn pretty well uh, <laughs> when I can but understand there's a lot. what's happening. Yeah, uh, it's just a lot. I also kind of wonder. I'm like, dude, like, why did you make so much work for yourself? Like drawing all these buildings, that must have taken forever. Yeah. Like even if you had assistance, you probably did. Like, why? Or at least the characters' powers, like the big bad's powers, just keep getting like stronger and stronger, and it's like. Yeah, I'm never going to be able to believe you that the characters could actually take this person down by this point. Yeah, and, this and I don't think they ever even quite ever used their trump card, really, or not exactly, and just... Yeah, and the person that has, like, uh, the the ice powers that just gets... Yeah, Ren. Bigger, yeah, bigger and bigger, and there are more and more blocks to draw. <laughs> Seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, the series was definitely just kind of messy... When it came to the villains, like when it came to the heroes that actually worked better, like a lot of the characters that we focus a lot of time on, they've got fairly clear motivations. We see character arcs for a lot of them. They sort of grow and change their viewpoints. But the villains are just sort of like whatever he needs them to do at the moment, just sort of chaotic, out of control. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a lot. I can't even say if I really enjoyed the series by the end. Like, well, I guess I can say I enjoyed it, but I can't tell if I liked it or if I'm sort of lukewarm on it I think I enjoyed it and liked it but it's not something that I would be like you should definitely read this mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why I'm so frustrated that the anime apparently wasn't a stronger adaption it's like yeah you could definitely have you know done some better things with the um, pacing you know maybe tightened up some things with plotting etc but it sounds like it didn't do that so it's just I'm disappointed in y'all yeah, I'm so disappointed as I recall the anime was pretty straight adaptation through that point also, do you think the professor's still alive, or do you think he's dead at the end? I have no idea about anything regarding the professor. I'm pretty sure he's supposed <laughs> to be alive, especially since they pull the bullshit at the end, like, nobody's seen ESP in three years, and the Pentagon has, like, locked down the Ark, but maybe. 
ESV is still out there, and it's just like, just, just come out either way, okay? Just nobody likes a wishy washer. Stop. Truth is out there, Helen. Professor is gonna find it. Aliens. It was aliens all along. Damn yeah, it. it was definitely. Aliens. I think it also implies that the arc from the aliens killed the dinosaurs. I think that was an implication at one point. <laughs> I remember oh that. <laughs> April, you don't understand, like, one of the characters has the power to, like, see the past when she's holding an object, and so she's mm-hmm. trying to figure out things, and she comes across this memory from a couple years ago where the professor's like, I have laid this elaborate plan that in case shit goes to hell, I am telling you everything you need to know to unfuck it. Paul <laughs> <laughs> knitting a scarf. Yes. And then he's like, how does the scarf look? And it's like, you, you know, she's just looking at the past, she can't answer you, dude. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, Tokyo ASP. What a manga. What a manga. rag. I'm, not, I'm still going to be always puzzled about why Vertical picked this one up, since it's not their usual... Oh, how did I describe things before the podcast? Edgy, adult, hating life, sexy sort of series? It's not like that. <laughs> well, we'll just have to corner around the edit upcoming con and ask him why. Yeah. Ask him the overbrew. You'll be mm-hmm. drunk and willing to speak more. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't be the strange thing that's happened to Overbrew. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we're done. Yep. Like, say goodbye, everybody. Okay. Bye, everyone. (laughs) Until next time. Bye, everybody.